Hello and welcome to The Crux, Women's Agenda's weekly podcast where we explore the issues of the week and the key stories that we are covering on Women's Agenda. I'm Angela Priestley and I'm joined by my co-founder, Tala Lambert. Hello, Tala. How are you? I'm good, Anne. How are you? Good, thank you. Today's agenda, we have a chat about the first sitting week of Parliament for the year, the issues taking centre stage. We take a deeper dive into some smutty comments from powerful men that's being called out big time by courageous women and look at how they are doing that. And we also have an excellent interview with the very funny Sarah Pascoe, the British comedian who is coming to Australia in April and is serving it up straight in just about every way. So let's get stuck in. Okay, so let's talk about this week. It is a big one. It is the first sitting week of Parliament and it feels like so much has happened already and it feels like there was never any break in terms of the news cycle and the things that are going on and even the legislation that is being introduced and the policy discussions even that are occurring that are very relevant to us on women's agenda and to all of us generally. What's really stood out for you so far? I mean, I think for me, the biggest thing that's sticking out at the moment is the debate around the voice. And we've published a little bit around what's going on here. And and obviously, it's a debate that's kind of gaining quite a lot of momentum and it's quite a lot of, of conflict around it at the moment. And obviously, the Labor Party and the government are pushing for a referendum in the middle of the year. They are urgently trying to press on the importance of the voice and and what it will mean to have that enshrined in the constitution. Obviously, there is backlash from the opposition and now from a range of, of independents. It looks like the government will need the support of new independent Lydia Thorpe, who's also been very critical about it as a first measure. I mean, for me, I feel like it's really concerning that we're at this point. I completely understand the concerns and feel like it's a really valid argument to say that, you know, the voice is not everything. It's not going to solve all the challenges that we currently have in having First Nations people recognised, for having their expertise and their input properly kind of included. But I also think that it is a really critical first step towards anything bigger and better. And so it's really kind of worrying for me that this is kind of taking such a nosedive at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily taking a nosedive. I think that certainly from the opposition with Peter Dutton, there's very much possibly seeing some opportunity in uh, being as oppositional as possible to this and continually demanding Mm. more information. I saw over the past day or so pushing for the government to endorse a model for the voice to parliament in order to win people's support. The whole idea is that that model actually gets legislated as opposed to getting enshrined in the constitution, at least as I understand it, which is obviously the constitution can be very difficult to change later on. I mean, one thing is that I feel like there's been a bit of a shift in the prime minister's language. He's clearly trying to simplify it because people are, despite there being plenty of information about what's involved, where it's come from, everything like that, I don't think it's necessarily that easy for people to understand. I definitely hear that from people who don't necessarily follow politics all that much, who are like, I just don't really get it at the moment. I don't feel like I have that much information. And that's not to say the information isn't there. It's just not being 
perhaps distilled in a, sadly, a slogan kind of way. And I saw that Albanese is using more of a slogan, which is recognition and consultation. And I actually think that's pretty good and pretty powerful. And maybe that may help a bit of momentum here. But um, some of the other things, I mean, obviously, it's a big week. And we can see today that Labor's introducing the gender equality amendment, which will include the workplace gender equality amendment for the closing the gender pay gap bill 2023, which is being introduced today, like I say, and it will publish gender pay gaps of employers with 100 or more workers, a key reform to drive transparency and action towards closing the gender pay gap. Also, I believe the new paid parental leave legislation is being introduced today. We are looking at that at the moment. That bill particularly will be really great to see. Transparency is so important. It's just going to be so good to see those figures because we all hear about these you know, any kind of organisation really pushing what they're doing on gender equality. But to see, you know, what their gender pay gaps is, is quite powerful and quite transformative because as soon as that gender pay gap is out there in the open and everyone's talking about it, those organisations will likely try and do everything possible to try and close it and to show that they are making intentional moves there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Or else face being called out and rightly so and I mean I think that it's really nice to see that this government is acting quickly on the review that was put forward by the Workplace Gender Equality Act and you know this was a key recommendation that they have really quite quickly kind of implemented so and Minister for Women Katie Gallagher said on average women working full-time can expect to earn 14.1% less than men per week in their pay packets And so, you know, this gender pay gap is still holding the economy back with $51.8 a year lost when it comes to women's pay, which is just huge. So, again, just a really key critical measure that is being implemented quickly. So that is, yeah, that's kind of hot off the press today. So that's happening, I think, as we speak. Mm. Also happening today, and I'm currently just writing about this, just seen a snippet of Peter Dutton's. I think we might oh, want God. to share it. Um, it's it's almost like it's reaching for Scott Morrison levels of remember that one from a oh, few no. weeks ago where he made that comment. We don't want uh, we what was it? We we don't want to lift others up by pushing people down. I can't remember the exact words. You'll probably remember it. I think that was it. We don't want to push women up at the risk of pushing others down. Maybe like so, that. Yeah. I, um, I can't remember if he's so explicit in kind of suggesting what's going on there. That but was the crux of it. Let's the crux of it. <laughs> yeah, let's not push any men down while those women are trying to get up to the top. Okay, so Dutton's been he's talking up the opposition has ten women in the shadow cabinet, which is the same as the government. He says the opposition has seventeen women altogether across the outer and assistant shadow ministries. And he's noted that <laughs> he has a wife. Okay. <laughs> he hasn't said that. Um, okay. I don't believe he has made too many comments in what I've seen regarding the you know report that was out towards the end of last year in terms of the Liberal Party's difficulties in attracting a female vote and also what we all kind of very much know about the difficulties that Liberal women have faced in the party and also what we know about how the pre-selection process and the fact that they're just not getting the numbers and they mm. don't have the quotas. They don't seem anywhere close to putting in quotas for women being pre-selected and that debate is just going to keep following them around and around and clearly they lost a lot of key seats and a lot of key men in the Liberal Party lost their positions in Parliament to teal women 
who decided to run as independents and outside the party machine in blue ribbon seats. A clear case of men being pushed down so women could <laughs> rise up. Scott Morrison was definitely <laughs> onto something there. Anyway, he said there's a, a key factor that can discourage women from pursuing a political office, which is the reprehensible treatment that several female politicians have received online in recent times. And he said that obviously the pay is not limited to liberal women, but women of centre-right who he said are subjected to the most disgusting vitriol online and social media dominated by the extreme and insidious left. Oh, right. Well, maybe you should tell Clementine Ford that. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, I mean, he's just, he's back there putting it as a choice. Like even to say women, we know, yes, some women are discouraged from, from politics, but it's not all about what they all experience online. I know it can be seriously shitty, but you've also got to look at your own internal procedures and your party and see what's going on and think about why some women are not rising up within that party structure also. But there was another thing he said. I don't know if this is where he finished. This is where this is the end of the part of the speech that I've seen so far. I'm going to write about this to make sure that I'm not missing the key factor <laughs> where he introduces quotas or something like that first. Says that that's what they'll be doing. But that the uh, he says that the sanctimony is obvious from many in this debate because the most important diversity of all, the diversity of opinion, will otherwise simply not exist. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a. It, I mean, it's a solid, solid point. Um, oh goodness me! I, I just how, don't know how, do how they can diversity miss it. of opinion. I wonder how does diversity of opinion get achieved? Oh, hmm. Just the, they miss the mark at every opportunity. I think that they could stick in whatever quotas. They could pay women a million dollars to join the party and people aren't going to be doing it because at the moment that party does not represent the interests of women at all, broadly. And so they just are fundamentally missing it. And I I don't know what is going to shift for them to get it. Mm. I, I suspect having Peter Dutton as leader is one of the first kind of mistakes there. And again, a key point, right? Like even at the point of choosing a new leader, they could have pushed for someone like Karen Andrews to be at the top. And and that could have been a really interesting segue into a new future for the yeah. LNP. Instead, that was the cream that rose to the top for the Liberal Party. It was, I don't know what the answer is for them, but I suspect that they're going to have quite a few years in turmoil. Yeah. Yeah. And on that diversity, I mean, I might just, I I don't have the final figures in front of me, but we do know that the representation of women in the coalition went backwards at the last election. And that was despite a record number of women getting seats in the upper and lower houses. And this is from quite a few months back. As I've sort of just sat here just trying to quickly Google up that figure, there's a great story that has come up from The Australian and it is it is a few months old. And it, sorry, it is, I should say, it hasn't, um, there were still some seats still in doubt. But at one point, there were uh, more men named Andrew, full senators named Andrew, than there were women. <laughs> so, yeah. I just love, like, what do you think the diversity of opinion is there? So it was just. <laughs> the Andrew dinner table. 
I know, I know. Yeah, the Andrew dinner table. They've done like a little picture of them, but they are the picture that they've done is uh, cross party because obviously there's you know there are actually a lot of Andrews in the Senate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, and I do want to quickly introduce my interview with the wonderful Sarah Pascoe, who I had the honor of having a chat with this week. Um, I'm such a massive fan. She is just so funny, so clever. And we had a really nice chat the other day um, that covered a lot of bases, but she's here in April with her new show. And so let's get stuck into that one. Her last live tour received critical acclaim and sold out at the Edinburgh Fringe before it started. Now the exceptional Sarah Pascoe is bringing her new show, Success Story, to Australia in April and May with tickets on sale now. I caught up with Sarah recently to chat about the tour and her incredible career to date. So Sarah Pascoe, it's so epic to have you with us on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I am fangirling a bit of a silly amount right now. So you're coming to Australia, which is incredibly exciting for everyone, uh, in just a few weeks. Mm. Tell us about Success Story and what we can expect from it. Well, in the show, I've got two halves talking about success. The first half is um, sort of funny stories from my teenage ambitions and ways that I tried to get on TV when I was a teenager, going through um, funny experiences I've had with meeting famous people and then finally um, being insulted by a Spice Girl. And then in the second half, I talk much more about infertility because that was the thing when we were doing IVF, that was the, they kept using the word success in terms of like, okay, like, you know, success rates and percentage Mm. chances and successful embryos, successful pregnancies. And having been so career driven all of my life, it really gave me a chance to examine like, oh, I see success in all of these different contexts. So the second half is, yeah, much more about becoming a mum and um, how that's changed my life. I love how kind of diverse that story is. And I think yeah. there'll be, you know, so much that people can take away from. I want to ask you a few questions about your life and career, because you mm-hmm. truly have become one of Britain's best comedians which is lucky because you've also been open about the fact that you wanted to be a star since you were 14 years old yeah but stand-up comedy isn't exactly the easiest means of achieving stardom particularly for women so what drew you to it well I failed as an actor and that accidentally got me into stand-up oddly because number one the reason I wasn't a very good actor was because I was too much myself like acting you're supposed to lose yourself and become other people characters and for me I wasn't conscious of it but I wanted myself to be seen on stage so like I can't do accents all of my characters were exactly like me and so when I did find stand-up <laughs> which was an out-of-work actor desperation thing of um, I just need to get on stage and and at the beginning I was sort of performing as a character with a guitar in inverted commas instantly I realized oh I should have been doing this all along like I want to talk directly to the audience I don't want to be saying somebody else's words I want to be saying mine so I was really lucky I found it but it is essentially a failure I don't think that is a failure I think that's just a recognition of you know an early recognition of how awesome you are and what kind of contribution you can make as as yourself yeah um you have worked alongside some of the greatest in the business so Jimmy Carr Catherine Ryan the late great Sean Locke 
Who is your own comic go-to? Who tickles your pickle more than anyone else? I really, really like people like James Acaster and Joe Lysett, who's also coming to Australia. And uh, and then, yeah, Catherine Ryan, as you say, and Roisin Connerty, who if you watch those kind of shows like 8 Out of 10 Cats, you'll be familiar with. She's just so funny in real life as well. And um, Ashling B. The other day, actually, I went for dinner with Roisin, Ashling and Catherine. And so, you know, on and off stage, they're my <laughs> comedy heroes. That would be the best dinner known to humankind, yeah. I imagine. I didn't even say a word. <laughs> I was just listening. I was um, just eating, eating my aubergine listening. <laughs> and what areas of life do you draw the most inspiration from in your comedy? Has your brand of comedy changed since becoming a parent? Oh, I think for a long time I wished I was a different kind of comic because I would look at other people, like someone like Jimmy Carr who just does gags and I would think, oh, I'm not a very good comedian because I don't do proper jokes. And so it took me a little while to accept, oh, me talking about my life is the kind of comedian I am. And you can't really change the kind of comic that you are. You could do an impression of a different kind of comedian, but the audiences won't buy it really. So you don't get to really choose what kind of comedy you do. It chooses you. Hmm. And so mine has always been essentially telling secrets, mine and other people's, and just too much information I used to I used to drink before I went on stage like have a glass of wine and I always thought my style was like a woman who's had too much to drink and isn't really filtering but then I stopped drinking before (laughs) I went on stage and I still kept telling all the secrets so I can't even blame wine anymore but I think that's why you resonate so widely because of the honesty of your stories and and there's such a truth-telling element to it your writing and comedy doesn't shy away from relatable topics, and you just mentioned IVF before, but topics like career failures, sex, money, infertility, therapist visits, the female body. Mm-hmm. How important is it to you to be honest in the content you create? Well, it is important, but mainly because an audience knows when they're being lied to. So say you've got an amazing routine about your boyfriend, right? Blah, blah, blah. I met my boyfriend. He does this. He wears this kind of shirt and it's your best routine. And then you break up with that boyfriend. Within two weeks, audiences won't be laughing at that routine. And you'll think, why not? Like they don't know anything, but actually they do. There's something in the way that you communicate. We're a very social species. So we pick up on each other's voice and body language And audiences will not laugh if they think that you're lying to them or you're pretending to be something that you're not. Um, Another example is, um, say you're really tired or really grumpy and you pretend to be fine on stage. You go on and go, hey, guys, how are we all doing? And the audience think, that's not true. That's not how she really feels. Much better to come on and go, it's so lovely to be here. I'm very tired (laughs) than to pretend that you're not. Um, So honesty is absolutely vital. Have you ever gone on Would I Lie to You? Yes, I have. It's very, very fun. <laughs> How do you go with it? It's good. Um, the first time I went on, I told them that I'd been to Costa Rica, but I thought Costa Rica was in Spain. And it was really great because David Mitchell was going, I mean, no one could be that stupid. <laughs> I've spoken to Sarah. No one could be that much of an idiot. But it was true. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens now is once oh. you've been on... You get to go back on every every few years. Stuff happens in your life, and I like write it down in my pad. Like I'm saving that for would I lie to you? That's a good one. <laughs> 
I do often think about that when I watch that show, whether or not I'd actually have enough of a bank of interesting stories about me um, that I could even kind of pull on. But some of the stories that come out of that show are so good. Well, they, a researcher sits down with you for like three hours and they go through every part of your life. So they'll be like, okay, at school, favourite teacher, this kind of thing, da, da, da. how did you do revision? And you're thinking, why do they ask? And then suddenly they'll get to a thing and they go, that's weird. You've got the same shower gel as your dog. And you're like, yeah. I mean, do it. And then so that they pick it out for you. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. That's so good. Um, look, on to something quite different, but we were talking about your brand of comedy, I guess. And, and you have often been labelled feminist comedy. What oh, do yeah. you think about that? And do you think those topics of conversation might just be labelled comedy rather than feminist comedy if there were more female comedians in the industry? Yeah, it's an odd thing because um, – when it very first happened to me, I was actually quite defensive of it, but that's because feminist had always been used in quite an insulting way. Coming from Essex, um, there were obviously feminists around, but I didn't particularly have many good influences from feminism um, until after university. So being mm. called a feminist comic, I, my hackles were up. Like, so I thought, well, what do they mean by that? And actually, all they meant was it's a woman talking. So like, if a man is in a supermarket, he's doing stand-up mm. comedy. And if I'm in a supermarket telling telling jokes about a supermarket, that's feminist just because I'm a woman doing comedy about a supermarket. <laughs> Sometimes I would yeah. look at my, especially if a review said it, and I'd look back at my like set and I'd think, oh, because I talked about having a bra on. So that's feminist, is it? Like it wasn't because I thought of feminism as sort of a form of activism, and oddly, a woman talking yeah, on stage yeah. unapologetically was seen as activism, even though it didn't feel like it. And then I think I really grew to see the importance of women hearing from women and a whole diverse set of opinions and experiences. So then I, I think I became much more of a feminist and took the term as much more of a compliment. Yeah, it's funny how a topic like, you know, wearing a bra, you know, can be perceived that way. Yeah. <laughs> It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's true that the stereotype of women not being as funny as men still persists in society. Is that something that particularly grinds your gears, especially when you were just noting, you know, all of the amazing female comedians mm. that you mm. know and respect yeah. and spend time with? What do you think needs to happen for that narrative to change? I mean, it's not something that comes up much in my life and that's because I work in comedy as a woman surrounded by lots of other women so I guess by now if someone didn't think women were funny they probably wouldn't come to one of my shows like I think I'm one of the ones they would absolutely avoid and so it really only I ever get asked about it in interviews people will say like oh you know this that and the other and I feel like it's a bit like wasted energy if someone genuinely doesn't have women in their life who make them laugh I feel sorry for them I think, oh, I mean, your life must be pretty dull then if, like, your mum isn't funny and your <laughs> sisters don't make you laugh and you don't have female friends. <laughs> and if you do have female friends but you don't find them funny, mm. then what a sad little friendship that is. So I, I, it's not something that I think needs to make us angry. <laughs> and actually, like, in this country, and I'm not saying it's mm. perfect, and I hate the thought that women might start and feel not welcome in comedy, but there are lots of women who are really rich from telling jokes. So it doesn't really matter if a man's like, oh, I always, always switch off when a woman's on because that doesn't hasn't affected our careers and won't affect the future of comedy. Mm. In terms of advice that you would give 
to other women looking to pursue comedy mm-hmm. as a career? Is there anything that stands out to you? Well, I would I would say it's a very attractive career. And I say that as someone who's now a new mum and I was able to go back to work for the first time five weeks after my son was born because I can work pretty much as and when I want to. And now being on tour, I work at nights, so I still get to spend the day with my son and he's in bed when I'm working. And while it can sometimes be tiring, I always think of women who have to go back to work because, you know, we all have to earn money, but their work isn't flexible and they have to pay a huge amount for childcare through the day, plus all of the guilt and you just wish you were there, don't you? So in some ways, yeah, it's a really flexible job where you are your own boss and you decide what you say at work. And so I know obviously you have to make comedy as well. <laughs> you have to like want to make people laugh, but you can also practice that. So I'm always really enthusiastic that people should just give it a go and see if they like it. And then if you do a couple of gigs and you don't enjoy it, you never have to do it again. But you you might just get a real obsession with it, which is what happened to me. Yeah, I mean, look, I've actually never heard anyone describe comedy in that in those terms and and the flexibility surrounding it but it makes sense Sarah Pascoe thank you so much for your time again and for anyone wanting to snag tickets to Sarah's excellent show which I am sure there will be many in our um, lovely listenership um, get online now before you miss out because she will be here in a hot minute in April but thank you so much thank you so much Tyler So, Ange, I want to move on to a theme that's been circulating around our stories for the last couple of weeks, and it's a theme of gutsy women calling out some pretty ick (laughs) behaviour. And the king of ick for this week, again, go figure, is uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who has been called out by Hollywood icon and a key supporter of Julian Assange, who's the WikiLeaks founder, Pamela Anderson this week and and actually she previously called him out but she's you know doubled down on the comments that she made this week which I'm sure I'm sure ScoMo's really happy about but she talked about you know writing to Scott Morrison while he was leader about Assange and how she feels very strongly about his his release and the response that she received from the prime minister at the time was for him to make a really gross comment about the fact that he would love to meet Pamela Anderson and he'd love to bring a few of his buddies along, mm-hmm. which is just so be a special envoy. Cringe. Yeah. So, so disgustingly cringe. Again, it goes back. I know this is, you know, like a couple of years ago, but it just goes to the heart of the problem again with the Liberal Party because Scott Morrison, you know, in that regard, wasn't an isolated entity. Like this is this is a, you know, culture that's very pervasive. Those kind of comments are rife within that party, like that idea that, you know, men are at the top of that party and that they can kind of get away with these kind of interactions and that's kind of what they feel um, resonates with the average Australian when they go and talk to like the media as though they're just these blokey guys that, you know, would love to have a special envoy with Pamela Anderson. So I I really commend her because honestly it's always nice when women call this shit out. It's not always easy but she has really courageously done that again 
Yeah. I mean, one thing we might say, it is always, I guess, easier for people who have an audience and uh, women who have some influence and power, I think possibly to call out some of this stuff and it really makes it more, it is helpful for anyone beyond that as well, because obviously there can be so many other factors involved in your life that can really just make uh, calling it out so difficult, including the fact that you may never be heard with the words that you share publicly in terms of trying to highlight the fact that this happened. Pamela Anderson, I thought her comments about what happened is how she used the word trivialized. And I I thought that was really important as well, because I mean, she was calling out an important issue regarding an Australian in Julian Assange and the plight of him and what Australia would do. And she wanted to have that meeting. And it was, it wasn't about trying to meet as a an entertainer or anything else like that or a Hollywood icon as um, we introduced her it wasn't anything like that was actually no I have you know I have a bit of influence here and I am looking at the plight of Julian Assange and I want to meet you with you and talk to you about it Mm. and he said he just relegated her to nothing but a sex symbol and um, just made it really gross the whole idea about you know a special envoy to sort the issues out with Pamela Anderson as if he's got all these mates who would just think that was the you know, best thing ever. It's just, yeah, it's right. just absolutely. Uh, it was so gross. And you know, he's he has never apologized to her for that. Scott I mean, Morrison's he, never he apologized. Know how to apologize? Shut the front door. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but the a second story on that that we wanted to highlight. Sorry, a very different story. But you know, let's put them together and let's create a trend out of it. Um, <laughs> is uh, so, and you'll find this story on our website. So Madeline uh, Hislop looked at it a few days ago, and it was uh, regarding a businesswoman in the US who really beautifully called out a group of men who started making comments about her physical appearance during an online conference call that she had. So her name is Whitney Sharp, and she's the VP of a recruiting and staffing firm in the US. And basically, she sort of came across this situation when one of the men on the call accidentally shared his screen with her so she could actually see the messages that they had been sending back and forth and these men were employees of a potential client. It's just so, I mean, it's the kind of thing, it's the locker room talk, the banter, whatever, it happens all the time but it doesn't need to happen and especially in this work context and you just think what are you thinking like actually typing these messages out and putting them on the out there on the internet and then obviously making the mistake of sharing the screen but the, the best bit is that she called them out and she filmed herself doing so she posted it to tiktok it's been viewed 14 million times and liked more than 2 million times probably a few million more since five days ago when we published this story and she makes the comment that you know if we are actually going to work together I want to work with a woman sales representative because I don't want to have to see locker room talk about myself when you're sharing screens and you know I know it was a mistake I just don't want to see it so if we could I like the product I know it's good I know it's tried and true but I just want to work with a woman and then you can hear the men in the background trying to grovel and apologizing and it was just (laughs) a moment of you know I'm going to film this and I'm going to call it out and I'm going to go and publish it as well yeah yeah um, and the non-apology that came mm. from yeah. that group of men as well and their admission that yeah. they didn't have a, a female to work with her, not a woman, they just referred to a, a senior female. We actually don't have one, um, which is probably yeah. an issue in itself. And that's, don't. that's the thing, yeah. Diversity of opinion. Maybe yeah. they have diversity of opinion. Yeah. <laughs> they would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's it for The Crux. Thank you, Tyler. First episode of the year, first episode of the new name as well. Hopefully it all went okay. 
If you do want to know more about the stories that we are covering, you can check them out on womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter, which comes out every day just around lunchtime. Thank you to Alison Ho for producing the episode and our full team for sharing these latest stories over the week. See you next time. Yeah.